Good morning. Uh, go ahead, take out your Bible, turn to the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, while you're turning there, I'm going to pray for our time together. But we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 as we started a couple of weeks ago, just walking through the book of 1 Corinthians chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Uh, we're going to start in verse 18 uh, together in just a few moments, but let me pray for us as we start. God, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for uh, the time that we have to gather together and to worship you. And God, I pray this morning that we would hear from you. It is what we desperately need. It's why we are here, whether we know it or not. God, we need to hear your voice. We need to open your word and know that it is your mouth speaking to us and that uh, its truth holds the key to life and to joy and to eternity. And so, God, this morning, I just pray that you would speak to each of us exactly where we are. I pray that you would speak directly to our hearts. I pray, Father, that we would hear your voice. I pray that it would transform us, challenge us, encourage us. God, we lift up the church of our city as well, and everywhere that your word is proclaimed this morning, I pray that you would uh, build your church up. I pray that you would build us deeper. I pray that you would bring people, draw people unto you, that many people across our city would come to know you for the very first time this morning. And so, God, everywhere that your word is proclaimed, I pray that you would bless it, that you would use it, that you would speak through it in power. And God, I pray that many people, that you would bless every single gospel-centered church in our community. We pray for them just as we would pray for us this morning. That you would just move in our community in a powerful way. And God, we give this time to you. We'd ask that everything that, that comes this morning, that everything that we do, everything that we hear, everything that we speak, everything in every way that we worship, that it would all give glory and honor to you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Okay, I'm going to ask for you to participate. It's a little bit, uh, a few less of you this morning uh, than we normally have. I felt it during worship. I felt like maybe you just weren't as awake as normal at 11 o'clock. Um, and, and so I want to ask you a question. Now, it's going to be really simple, all right? I'm just going to ask you to raise your hand, all right? If this applies to you, I know some of us, we come from like Baptist, Methodist, Lutheran, Catholic background, so raising your hand, not being on the back seat is really weird for you. Uh, and so a lot of you aren't as charismatic, maybe, as, as the Spirit would want us to be. And so, um, so I'm just simply going to ask you to raise your hand, okay? Raise your hand if you ever think to yourself or wonder about others around you what they think about you in that moment. Almost all of us raise your hand. If you didn't raise your hand, listen to me, it's because you were thinking, what will all these other people think of me if I raise my hand right now? All right, this is something every single one of us deals with. Now, as I was thinking about this question this week, I was thinking to myself, okay, why on earth is that something that every single one of us at a heart level, as a cultural norm in our community, why do we struggle with this? And a major factor, if not, I would say the factor and reason that we think constantly about what other people are thinking about us is this reality that we were made for community. We were created in the image of God. We were created to have unity with him. And when he created us, we had a perfect unity with him. We were completely satisfied in him. We, we had every longing that we could ever dream of in community with God. And because we were in right relationship with him, we could be in right relationship with one another. We were not seeking something that we did not already have in every relationship and in every person and every person that looks at us or thinks of us. We were completely satisfied in Christ. And in so being, none of us needed anything from another. None of us needed anything from anything that we could gain or accomplish or have. 
We fully worship God and had communion with him. And every single one of us longs to be in the image of God, loved and fully known. And as we walked away from God in rebellion, as we began to become more self-centered and, and, and seek our own way of salvation, our own life, to, to build ourselves up, to find our own way, as we sinned and rebelled against God, we began to seek in things of the world what can only be given to us and accomplished and experienced and have the satisfaction of in Christ and in community with him then it, it set us apart from God. And so we were not satisfied in him. We began to be sat, try, seek satisfaction in the things of the world. And it also brought disunity amongst us. So we desperately want to still be made for God, to worship him, to know him, to have community with him, to have unity with him, to have satisfaction in him. But we want to be fully known as we were created to be in God, but we know that in rebellion against him and the way that that has created disunity amongst us, that if we are fully known, we will not be fully and truly loved. There's something in us that says, I want to be fully known. I want to be fully loved in the knowledge of who I really am, but I know that if I show and reveal everything, then people will not be able to love me. Therefore, we hide. Therefore, we think to ourselves, what are other people thinking about me? And, and the way that we dress, the way that we think, the way that we talk, everything that we do, we are constantly thinking about the community we were created to have with God. It's an apologetic in our life that God, by his grace, allows us to think, what are others thinking of me? And it, and it points us, should point us to him and the reality that we were created to be satisfied in him and in him alone. But all of us outside of him hide parts of ourselves. We don't want everybody to know everything about us. And no matter who we are, we all have a tendency to varying degrees and varying ways around various people to think about what are people around me thinking about me. It's been that way since the garden and since God created the first man and woman and they walked away from him. What was the first thing that they did? They did not turn to God and repent, and though they were naked and unashamed in their relationship with God at creation, they didn't seek after that. And God, how do we, how do we repent? How do we repair? But they immediately just tried to hide a part of who they were before God. They felt shame. They felt like they couldn't be known, and they had to hide from the God who created them to have everything in them because they became self-aware. They began to... Uh, to self-rule and to seek their own way in the things of the world to fulfill them in a way that only God could. And so they felt shame. And so now we all feel that shame. We all desire in some ways to hide ourselves because in all of our wisdom outside of God and in everything we can accomplish and everything we can figure out and all the knowledge that we have, we, we come to the realization that no matter what we seek life and salvation and identity and value and worth in in the world, it will not satisfy us in the way that we long for it to. It won't make us whole. And none of us feel as though we are everything that we want to be, nor are we everything that we should be. And we're constantly pursuing that in our lives. So we struggle on a heart level and, as I said, a cultural norm to hide a little bit of who we are, to hide that we're not the perfect person that we feel like we should be, 
that we were created to be in God. And so we, we don't want everybody to know exactly who we are because we understand innately that in our own wisdom and pursuit of everything that we long to be and should be, that we are not fulfilling and nothing in the world can satisfy everything that we feel like we should have and we're created to have. There's a certain foolishness in our own wisdom. We all understand that. If we're honest with ourselves, David Foster Wallace uh, he was a novelist, and uh, just uh, he, he became very popular at the end of his life. He gave a commencement speech that just it blew up and was just so powerful, and you can read the whole thing online. Um, but he wrote this at a, at a, and spoke it to a, a university just a, a short time before he took his own life. And I want us to, to, to just wrap our minds around this. Here's what he said. Here's something else that is weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as, as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice that we get is what to worship. And then he says this, the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type of thing to worship, be it JC, and he means Jesus Christ, or Allah, or to be Yahweh, or the Wiccan Mother Goddess, or the Four Noble Truths, or some set of ethical principles. So clearly he was not a follower of Christ, but I think he is really, really on to something and giving us some wisdom as he was given to those students this morning. He said it is pretty much the reason that it's so attractive to hold on to and worship one of those things is that pretty much he says anything else that we worship, any other wisdom in the world, anything we seek satisfaction in life in will eat us alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap into for real meaning, then you will never have enough. You will never feel you have enough. He said, it's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power and you will feel weak and afraid. Worship intellect and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Here's what I want us to know. There's something in us that in all of our wisdom believes that by accomplishing, by our very nature, by accomplishing, by achieving, by becoming, by pursuing, that we will find everything that we long for and we can have satisfaction. Yet there's something also in us all that understands there's a foolishness in that worldly wisdom that nothing that we seek life in will actually be able to satisfy us, that none of it will fulfill us and give us the value that we were created to have in God alone. And so what I want us to hear this morning is no matter what we're seeking in a worldly wisdom type of way can give us the salvation that we long for. Nothing will fulfill us and we will always feel that we don't have enough, that we aren't enough, that we have to continue to pursue. There will always be a shame that we are not all that we were created to be outside of God and we will always feel that we need to hide. We will want to be fully known and fully loved, but it doesn't exist. There's a foolishness in worldly wisdom. Yet, there's also this feeling of a little bit of foolishness in Christianity, is there not? This belief that 
Maybe it's, it's a little bit weird to even believe that God came down to earth. How many of you have ever like, tried to share your faith if you're a follower of Christ in here this morning and you've, and you've kind of gotten into the middle of it? You're like, hey, let me just tell you about Jesus. Jesus is God and he came and lived. He was born of a virgin. He died on the cross for our sin, though he did nothing and did not sin. He was perfect on our behalf and he rose from the dead. And like halfway through it, you're like, you know what? This is, kind of, is this really what I believe? Like I know it's true. I believe it. But it's a little bit foolish Sounding, is it not? And so how many of you have ever been just called weird for being a Christian? One more chance to raise your hands, right? And if you didn't raise your hand on that one, it's probably because nobody knows you're a Christian. That's a part of you that you're hiding because you're constantly thinking, what will they think if, I, if they know that I am one? And if you're not a believer in here this morning or you're watching online and you're not a believer, then you could probably testify from your couch at home or your seat in here. Yeah, Christians are a little weird. Y'all do some weird things, and some of it is, is not even on Scripture or on God at all. Sometimes Christians just do weird things. We need to stop. We take everything that God tells us and the pathway that he calls us to walk on in freedom, in his spirit, and we just twist, turn into all kinds of weirdness that it should not be, right? So we divide on really weird things. We don't understand grace in the church and and that God has saved us fully by his grace and that, that all of us are created equal in his image. And oftentimes we don't be, display that grace, that our value is actually in God and who he created us to be in his image. And therefore we judge one another. We compare ourselves to one another. We're constantly arguing about different things and, and believing that we deserve different things that others may not because of our comparison or our misunderstanding of grace in the gospel. And, and uh, Brian Loritz actually says that in a lot of ways, when the church misunderstands grace, that we actually catfish our culture, right? Like we're telling them all about what God's word says and the gospel truth. But then when they actually see a Christian and the picture of a Christian, it's not at all what the Christian explained itself to be, right? And so that looks foolish to the world. It looks weird to the world. We create subcultures, and so we look at the things of the world and we think to ourselves, well, we don't want to get that type of sin on us because we think somehow sin is something that, that we catch rather than being something in our hearts. And so we just separate ourselves from everything and then we create our own kind of, you know, brands and clothing and music and all different kinds of things. And the world looks at that and it just looks kind of foolish. Like it's just kind of weird. And then even when you do it well, you actually live in who God has called you to be. You're seeking to love people. You're in the world, but not of the world, as we've been talking about, walking through the book of 1 Corinthians. That, too, looks a little bit foolish because the gospel in and of itself, as I said, just sounds a little foolish. I think Chick-fil-A kind of maybe does outside of the church a good job of maybe being a little bit in the world, but not of the world. And, and they're certainly different, and we think it's weird, even though we're attracted to it. Like, all of us like Chick-fil-A. Right? And it's not just because they have good food. It's also because they treat you like a person. You go to any other drive through restaurant and you pull up to the window, you will never know if they're giving you all the food. You will never know if they, if they forgot your drink or they're getting your drink or what's going on with your drink. They will never say thank you. They will never say goodbye. It's, it's literally like just throwing a bag through your window. And then you go to Chick-fil-A and they treat you like a person. They say, my pleasure. They're nice. They care for you. They're like, hey, here's all of your food. Do you need anything else? I'm getting your drink right now. Like they're walking you through everything. They're different. They're set apart. 
But it's still a little bit weird. You walk away and you're attracted to it and you want to go back, but you're like, that's so different. It's so countercultural to the fast food world that it's just, it's different. It's weird. It's not the same. And so there's, there's this foolishness of the gospel truth. And then there's also this foolishness in the world that all of us feel that no matter what we do in worldly wisdom, by seeking our own way, we cannot find satisfaction. But then when we just hear about the gospel, it's so countercultural, it seems foolish too. And so the question becomes, and what Paul is answering is, what is true wisdom? What is truth? What actually satisfies? Where can we actually find life? What do I boast in in my life? What do I speak about? What is good? What is wise? Where is true wisdom found? What is worth all of life? What do we worship when we all worship? What do we boast in and and what can actually satisfy? Well, Paul here addresses to the church in Corinth, he, he addresses this exact question. If you remember the church in Corinth, they're struggling with allowing kind of the cultural norms of Corinth to, to bleed into the church. They're not in the world, uh, but not of the world. They're just kind of in the world, and the culture has begun in this young church's life to determine the way that they view God, the way that they read Scripture, the way that they have unity together, which if we're not very careful, and we talked about this in week one, the church in America images very well the issues that the church in Corinth had. We allow the culture to determine the way we view God. We allow the culture to determine a lot of times the way we view scripture. And then the culture and the unity that we have looks just like the cultural norms. And so Paul went into Corinth. He planted the church. He left to go plant other churches and go on and check on other church plants. And just a handful of years later, this is the issue of the church. All of these things that they were dealing with before they put their faith in Christ have begun to come the norms of the community that they are supposed to be having in Christ. And that's what they're revealing in the world around them. So they're struggling to find their identity and who Jesus says they are. They're struggling to find their salvation and and their satisfaction in him. And they're they're walking in the way of the world. And they're pursuing and, and believing that something out there, a relationship, a thing, whatever it may be, they need to fulfill them certainly in the same ways that we do today. And so Paul is going to lay out what the, this contrast between the foolishness of the world and the foolishness of the gospel and the reality of what we can trust and put our life in. He's going to do this in three different examples. In verses 18 through 25, he talks about the, the, the cross, how the cross actually is an example of foolishness and, and how it contrasts with the foolishness of the world. And then the church in verses 26 to 31. And then the thing that we're going to see next week is the third one in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And that is the proclamation of the gospel. So look with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? That is a huge question for us this morning. What is the difference between the foolishness appearing of the gospel and the foolishness of the world we all feel? And has God been able to make foolish the things of the world with his truth? 
verse 21, for since the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of, of what we preach to save those who believe. For the Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jew and folly to the Gentile. But to those who are called, both Jew and Greek, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful, and not many were of noble birth. Now, I want to pause right there just for a second, because we're not going to have time this morning to really flesh out verses 26 through 31. Uh, We're going to focus on this central three theme in these first handful of verses. But I do need to say that one of the things that was culturally occurring in Corinth, on top of the things that we've already discussed throughout this letter, is that the people were coming together in the church from a caste system. They're very different, and they're trying to unite in who Christ has called them to be, even though they are very different. And once they leave the gathering and they're not doing life together, everyone in the culture is saying, you should not be together. You should not love one another. You should not communicate. You should not care. You should not show compassion. And it was not being demonstrated in any way in the culture. Now, this is a massive opportunity for the church to be a picture of who Christ is and how he satisfies our soul so that we no longer need anything else or anything from anyone. And we can begin to have unity by the grace that we have in Christ, understanding that we are all made in the image of God and worthy and valuable in him. And therefore, we can love one another, display that love and unity together, that our diversity actually gives a fuller and more beautiful picture of who God is when we come together in that diversity that he has created and given to us as a blessing to reveal him with. So the church has this massive opportunity, but there's this caste system, and a lot of them are indentured servants. Rome at this time was actually overpopulated, and so they sent a lot of people to places like Corinth, and they elevated their, their, their level in the, in the caste system to what was called freedmen. So they were once indentured servants, but now they're freedmen. They're still the lowest of the low. And no matter how much money they make in a place like Corinth where that is a possibility, they will always be the lowest of the low. They can be rich, but they will still be considered poor because it was based on who you know, who you were born to, uh, whether or not you are an actual noble or not. But there were also nobles in the church. We know of one, Erastus. We hear about him in Romans chapter 16, and if you were to go there in court today in the ruins, there's actually a plaque to Erastus. He was an early Christian in the church, a noble. He held one of the highest positions in the city, and the plaque is there because he actually paid for the main road from Corinth to Rome. And so we see these people are coming together, but they're having a hard time having unity in the gospel truth and revealing that in the world because the cultural norm demands that it be different. There's a wisdom of the world and there's a wisdom of God. And Paul wants to point that out and he's calling them back to who they are in Christ. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low to be despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that it is written, let no one boast, no one who boasts, boast. Can't even get this right. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's what you get when you try to do it on memory instead of just reading the words. Just all comes out all messed up. 
So, so here we have this text, and, and Paul, if we're honest, when we read this, it's kind of confusing. Like Paul's saying it sounds like the same thing over and over in different ways, and it's kind of hard to kind of put it all together. And so here's what I want us to see. And first, we need to go back to verse 17 to get a foundation of what Paul is actually doing here. And it's funny to me um, that what we know is that this is a continuous letter. And so uh, for us, we're chopping it up into smaller sections so that it's bite-sized and we can handle it on a Sunday morning gathering. But the church in, the, in Corinth would have read all of this together, discussed it all together. They would have given commentary to it all together, and they would have been there as long as needed to be for that to happen. But for us, we need the foundation of what we talked about last week so that we understand what Paul's talking about this week. And so in verse 17, Paul is is essentially saying, if you remember, I'm not bringing this truth to you with human wisdom, with Sophia. And we talked about sophistry in the day and how in Corinth, one of the major ways of entertainment and gaining of wisdom and philosophy was that these sophists would go around and they were kind of the most popular speakers. They, they were experts in Greek rhetoric and philosophy, and, and it was more of kind of a show than actually sharing truth. But they would travel around to different cities, and they would post themselves up in the middle of the, the, the court area, and they would just speak. And they were so eloquent that they would get, draw big crowds, and people would follow them. And then they would have disciples that would go around in the cities and they would kind of belittle the other sophists so that their sophists could be kind of the most popular. And this was a very popular mode of, of transferring ideas and, and thought and philosophy. And many people would buy onto these things and hold them. And so Paul wants to make very clear that, listen, we are not just sophists here. I'm not just coming to you with this eloquent phrasing and this eloquent speaking. I'm not just trying to give you wisdom of the world. And we saw last week how some of the people in the church, this is another way that the culture was creeping in. They were saying, I follow Paul because Paul is Roman and he originally planted the church. And so I'm, I'm going to follow him because he's been here since the beginning. And then that's kind of, the, he's the starter. So he kind of holds the power behind what's going on. And if you were Roman, you were all about power. The way, the story that you told about finding value and worth in life was power. You wanted power. You wanted position. And then many were going, I follow Apollos because Apollos, he's the most eloquent. He, I mean, he was the most popular in the day. He was Greek. And so he was very wise because the Greeks, as we see, they wanted wisdom and they, they pursued wisdom. And the story that they told themselves was our value and worth is in being wise. It's in making sense of the world. It's in understanding philosophy. And so they were, they were pinning the stories of their world and what they find value in and the wisdom of the world on the ones who were telling them about Jesus. It was just a, another eloquent form of philosophy and idealism. Some of them were following Peter because he was a Jew and Jews desired signs and he was very much into uh, the, the religious activity and the traditions of the day. And so they're, they're bringing in all of these things that were happening in the culture into the way that they view the gospel, into the way that they view Jesus. And I love this because Paul just said in verse 17, I'm not bringing you any worldly wisdom or I'm not a sophist. I'm not trying to bring you sophistry. But what I am going to do is actually outwit the sophist. And so the reason that this is so confusing when we read it is because he's going, I'm not coming to you like the sophist, but I am going to do all that I'm about to say to you in Greek rhetoric. 
And he does it in a way that's even more wise and beautiful than any sophist in the day. This would have left the people reading it in Corinth with their their jaws absolutely on the ground. Because not only does he use Greek rhetoric, and I'm going to nerd out for just a second. If you, some of you, you might want to like check out just for a moment, and then I'll kind of snap a couple of times. And you can come back with us. Some of you like this kind of stuff, and I get really excited about it. Um, and I have to really weed through what do I actually say and what do I not about this because we could talk about this for days. But I think this is really cool and helps us understand what's happening here because not only does Paul say, hey, this is not about wisdom, but yet I'm going to out uh, wisdom the wise in, in, in this area of Corinth, but he also writes this in a hymn style. It's a prophetic mirroring of Isaiah chapter 50. And this is brilliant of Paul. He uses this structure of mirroring an Old Testament passage. He uses Greek rhetoric, but then not only that, he also uses the structure of a famous epitaph. In 430 BC, there was a group of uh, uh, Athenians who died saving the city of Athens from Sparta in the Peloponnesian War. Maybe you know about this or have read about this. And then there was this famous speech by this guy named Pericles where he honored everyone who gave their life to save Athens. And then by Greek law, they would use this epitaph every single year. They would get up and they would repeat it to honor the people who died to save their city. And what Paul is doing here is going, hey, I'm not just trying to use wisdom here, but I'm going to use Greek rhetoric so that you understand what I think of wisdom and what wisdom truly is, but I'm also going to mirror Isaiah 50 to draw back in Christ and what God is telling us throughout his scripture. But then I'm also going to use a common cultural um, epitaph that all of you know and understand because when you use it, you're using it to give honor to those who died for the people of the city, and I'm going to use it to actually explain Jesus, who made the ultimate sacrifice for all who believe and by his grace are saved. So he is doing something here that is absolutely brilliant. But yet in the middle of it, he goes, but none of this is about wisdom. Like this is going to be more wise, sound more sophisticated than anything you will hear in the city, but it's not about wisdom of the world. I don't want you to confuse that. And so Paul's essentially saying it would be like uh, a woman winning a beauty pageant and then getting the sash and the flowers, the trophy, and then standing up in front of everybody and going, beauty is nothing. But you're the most beautiful one. You were just called. You just won the award for them. But beauty is nothing. It'd be like the most successful, wealthy person standing up after being voted the most successful in the year and saying success and money is nothing. It would be like someone winning the Super Bowl and getting up afterwards and saying, winning is not the point. And when someone of, of, of accomplishment and authority and power and wisdom gets up and says something like that, we listen to them. We lean into that type of thing. And that's what Paul's doing here. And so again, the question for Paul is, what do we boast in? What do we find wisdom in? What actually gives us life and satisfaction? Where is it all found And in this day, again, the Greeks loved wisdom and education and the Jews loved their signs and they wanted to see a king come and rise their people out of oppression and the Romans wanted power. And so when they look at Jesus who came humbly, who never had a place to lay his head, 
who never ruled on an earthly throne, who died a sinner's death on the cross. When they look at Jesus, who proclaimed to be God, it looks to them like foolishness because the wisdom of the world is saying, we need wisdom, we need power, we need a sign, we need a king, we need a ruler that's going to satisfy what we think is what we need. And the king that they got is not what they wanted, but actually what they needed. And it looked like foolishness to them. And so Paul, and a lot of times it looks like foolishness to us. Because of the wisdom of the world and the things that we fall into and the traps that we fall into to think these are the things that I need and I need to pursue and I need to gain to get satisfaction and to just tell me that I need to surrender to Jesus and follow him and that he died for my sin and that he rose from the, that's foolishness. Because I look to myself and I've accomplished a lot. And if you tell me that by surrendering to God's grace, I am saved, then what does that say about all the work that I've done? What does that say about the wisdom I've gained? What does that say about the accomplishments that I have? And so Paul wants to give us this better lens in which to see the world and life and understand true wisdom. It's like when you go to the eye doctor and you sit down in the chair and he puts the big old machine on you. And then he, he says, okay, is it better one or two? Three or, three or four, one or two, three or four. Like he just starts confusing you really quickly, like five or six. And you're like, man, I don't know. I don't even know what to say. I don't want to screw up here. This is really confusing. It's all looking blurry. I can't see clearly through any of it. And then all of a sudden, he's like, okay, how about this? And I don't know how he gets to how about this, he or she, but it's like, that's it. Like, everything now is clear. I see all the letters on the letter chart. Like, it's all there. That is what I need. And that's what Paul wants to do. Because he knows that we're looking at the world and the lens is coming over our eyes and we're going, I don't know, the world, that's blurry. The wisdom of the world, it's kind of blurry. I'm not really sure how I should perceive it, how I should view it, what's going on, the cultural norms, all blurry. And then suddenly, boom, Jesus, the cross, the gospel, and we think to ourselves, that's it. And when we see Jesus for who he is and what he's done and his wisdom and how he has flipped wisdom upside down and foolishness upside down, then suddenly we get the clarity that we need. And so Paul wants us to see all of that through the cross. And so the first thing that he says, and we'll go quickly through these first handful of verses, he wants us to know that there are actually two ways in which we live. So he says, there's a way of the perishing. It's the, it's the way of the world. All of us innately know it. We're seeking wisdom in the world. We're seeking life in the world. And there's something in us, as we said, that knows nothing can satisfy. But we keep hoping that the next thing that we worship, the next thing that we seek, the next accomplishment we make will somehow satisfy us and make us whole. But it never does. It just leads us further and further away from what we actually need so he says there's a way of, uh, uh, that we can live that's, that's perishing, but then there's also a way to have life. There's the grace of God. There is the reality that God did come down and, and live for us the life that we couldn't live, that he did die to pay the penalty of our sin. They did rise from the grave to overcome sin and death, and that by his grace we can be saved by placing our faith in him. And then we get to walk in his way. The, book, the Bible is not just a list of rules to follow and to accomplish we cannot have salvation in that, but the, the Bible actually lays out a path for those who are saved by his grace that the Holy Spirit lives and dwells in, that we can actually walk in his freedom the way that he has designed us to live in unity with him and one another. 
So there is a way that is perishing. It's the wisdom of the world, he says. There's a way that gives life. It is the way of God. But there are not two categories, good people and bad people. But there's a way that's perishing, and then there's a grace from God that saves. So all of us are sinful people, and then there's Jesus. And Jesus makes a way for us to have salvation. But here's what we need to know. There's no matter of work or good deeds or gospel knowledge or biblical understanding that can save you. You cannot be saved by showing up at church every Sunday. You cannot be saved by going to small group every week. You cannot be saved by no matter how many times you have gone to Sunday school. You cannot be saved by memorizing the entirety of scripture. You cannot be saved by just knowing and reading every single theology book that you can ever get your hands on and being able to regurgitate it and make everyone feel small that's next to you at church because of how much you know. That does not save you. Now, should we love God with all of our minds? Absolutely, because the Holy Spirit, once we have placed our faith in him, gives us a passion and desire. It transforms our our longings to know him in deeper ways, but then we're able to love people into truth, not just belittle them with our truth. So no matter how much you have gone and done and, and accomplished, you cannot be saved by your religious views. Going to church doesn't save you. But at the same time, human wisdom irreligiously cannot save you. You will not find salvation that you long for or or completion and satisfaction in anything in the world. The end goal of human wisdom, which is religion without Jesus or irreligion of any kind, the main goal of wisdom of man whether it is religious or not, is to get to God by your own accomplishments or to become God by your own accomplishments. To accomplish your own salvation. But the gospel isn't about getting to God. It's about how God came to us. And his word, as I said, is not a list of to-dos, but it's it's an understanding of who we are and faith in him and what he has called us to do and his freedom. So to many, he says, it seems foolishness outside in our own creation of understanding who Christ is that we surrender ourselves to Christ. Because as I said, what do I now do with all of the works that I've done and the goodness that I have and the accomplishments that I have and the relationships that I have and and the money that I've built up and the success and the kingdom that I'm building? But we know in the gospel that it's not about building a kingdom of creation, but it's about bringing the kingdom of God down into the communities we live in. It's about having satisfaction and wholeness in him, not, not building satisfaction up in the things of the world that we're created to give glory to him with. So he says, it's foolishness to those who are just seeking worldly wisdom for salvation, but to those who are being saved, sanctification, those who are growing in an understanding of their knowledge of who they are in God. This is the power of God, he says. Then he quotes several Old Testament passages to kind of bring this truth together. The first one's Isaiah 29, 14. It says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. But right before that, in Isaiah, it says in verse 13, And the Lord said, Because this, the people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me. And their fear for me is a commandment taught by man. It's, it's not of an actual heart transformation. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with his people, with wonder upon wonder. And then he says, the wisdom of the, of the world shall perish. So what he's saying in this text is, 
Even though we seek wisdom of the world, we seek salvation and and fullness in the world, even as the people of God, we're walking away from what we were actually created to know in him and reveal of him together into the rest of the world. But God will be faithful. So he's acknowledging, hey, church in Corinth, us today, Redemption Hill Church, we have this tendency to walk away from pure wisdom in Christ and into the wisdom of the world, but God is still faithful and he will do wonder upon wonder amongst his people because the wisdom of the world he will put to shame. Now, what does that actually mean? We'll see here in just a second. But then as soon as he draws back on the Old Testament, he pops back into the present as though that is already a reality. Everything that he just said has happened and is undisputed. He says, where is the one who is wise? So God's, God's already accomplished and revealed his wisdom and the foolishness of the wisdom of the world. So where are the wise? Where's the one that stands against him? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of the age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Which is from Isaiah chapter 19, where Paul actually is drawing back on the fact that God overcame the Pharaoh's counselors when he was setting his people free out of Egypt. And so he's drawing on history, but he's also pointing to something that Christ had just done. He's saying from history past, God has always outwitted. His wisdom has always been more powerful. His wisdom has always been true, even over the smartest and most wise of the world. He has always overcome. So essentially he's saying, who can rule the world? Who can even control or determine their next breath? Yet God has sovereignly been working through all of history. He is constantly revealing his power and his sovereignty. Who can compare to him? But as God made foolish, he said, the things of the world, how has he done that? And he is reminding them of something that that has happened, but also something that will come. And he says, in all of our brilliance and all of our science and all of our technology and philosophy and anthropology and psychology and ingenuity and academic study, we are unable to get to the creator God in and of ourselves. The world has proven, he says, not to be able to bring us to salvation. He says, we need Jesus, and to have Jesus, he says, we need revelation from God. We're never going to find him in and of ourselves. We can't be good enough. All of us fall short of his glory. And so as he's pointing to the past, he's also pointing to what Christ has ultimately done, saying every single one of us, we need to understand who Jesus is and what he has done, that God actually did step into human history, and it might sound like foolishness, but what it actually does when we lean in and understand it is reveal itself to be pure wisdom. And when we see Jesus, we actually see and understand who God is. He shows us with his life what is most important. He makes a far-off God close and touchable. He makes a silent God audible through his words. He makes the power of God visible through his touch. And through his work and what he has done for us, he reconnects us to who we were created to be in God by his death and his resurrection. And by grace, we can put our faith in him and be saved. And so through the cross, we do not have to look to the things of the world and the wisdom of the world any longer to have fulfillment. But we can in him who fully knows us understand that we are fully loved in him. Because while we were still sinners and he knew all of our sin, he came and died for us in love. We need Jesus. 
We need an understanding of his cross and his gospel to understand anything or else all of our wisdom will fall short of the knowledge we desire it to be and to bring. But this is the opposite of what we do in the world, is it not? Look at the Jew, he says. They wanted a king and a ruler to reign and to overcome Roman power. But instead of getting what they wanted, they get a king who rides into the city of Jerusalem on a donkey and one week later is dying on a cross and they believe he is cursed. They think this is the Messiah. He didn't conquer, he was conquered. He didn't overcome, he was overcome. So they cannot boast in this foolishness because they would have to admit that everything that they wanted did not come true. They can't boast in the cross because they would have to admit that they're weak and that they don't need a ruler to reign and rule and lift them up over Rome. They would have to admit that they're broken and that that humility is key and not power and honor and no sign can be revealed to them of, of who they are going to be as a people because their Savior came and died. They wanted a king to make their nation prosperous. They wanted a God that they could worship that would make them happy, that would make them successful, that would make them healthy. Give us a sign, God. How many of us, we, we end the wisdom of our own world and our culture and our normal just way of life, we look to God in this way. God, give me a sign. If you are really God, then, then I will worship you and you make me healthy. If you're really God, then I will worship you and, and you build me up and make me happy. If you are God, then you give me success. You make me prosperous. Give us a sign. See, all the Jews wanted was an all-powerful genie who worshiped them as God and could do everything that, that they wanted him to do. But that's not how Jesus came. Jesus actually told them in Matthew chapter 16, the only sign that you need is the resurrection. See, Jesus had done sign after sign after sign that he was God. But as long as we're just looking for a sign, we will only focus on the the most recent and latest thing that God has done. And we will always just want him to do more because there's always an emptiness. There's always a shame. There's always something to hide. And so we will always need God to do more for us. But Jesus said the resurrection is the only sign that you need because at the resurrection, I give you new life. I satisfy you. I reconnect you to the community you were created to have with me so that you need nothing of the things of the world anymore to have everything that you were created to have. The Greeks just want wisdom. And so they put God on trial. And they're constantly just saying, okay, God, I have my own thoughts. I have my own wisdom. I have my own desires. And so I'm going to question you in all these kinds of ways. And I am the judge and you are on trial. And if you answer everything in the way that I want you to answer them, then maybe I will add you to my life. But, uh, but I know best. Listen to me. How arrogant is that wisdom of the world? That I would know better than God. That I could be the one to put him on trial. See, this is not, this is the wisdom that we typically walk in, but it's not actually wisdom. When we look at it and dissect it, we can see that there is a foolishness to it. But listen, I'll close with this. Think about this. If the God of the universe that we serve came and was poor, then what does that mean about the way that we view money? If the God of the universe came and was poor, then what does that mean about what we need of success and and money and wealth and items and things and materials? 
Does he not, if he is the sovereign God of the universe who comes and is poor and has nothing, reveal that we do not need power and wealth and and, and success and materials to have everything that we long for and need? That we don't have to hide from not having something that we feel like we should have to have everything we want. If we serve a God who did not sit on an earthly throne to demonstrate his power, then what does that say about power? What does it say about position that we need and the success that we pursue and and everything that we think we need of power in the world? If God came and he did not sit on an earthly throne, then all of a sudden we begin to realize that I do not have to have the power that I think that I need in earthly wisdom to be who I was created to be. If we serve a God who died on a cross for those that didn't deserve it, then what does that say about suffering? What does it say about how we view health and suffering in the world and and maybe even that the suffering that we go through could reveal to us in a greater way exactly what we need in the community that we were created to have with God? If we serve a God who died for our sin to demonstrate his love for us, then what does that say about love? What does it say about the relationships that we need? That, that I no longer need in Christ to have relationships that fulfill me in some way. I don't have to ask the question of what are you doing for me or how are you completing me or, or how can I get or how can I use you to become what I need and get what I need out of a relationship. But if the God of the universe came and gave his life out of a pure love, then that demonstrates to me that when I am in community with him, I can live sacrificially and I can love and fully know people but yet love them for who they are because of who they are in Christ. If we serve a God who rose from the dead, then what does that say about our purpose in life and what we should live for? That maybe the things and the kingdoms that we're trying to build are not what will actually satisfy, but revealing the kingdom of God that he brings to earth through his resurrection is why we are here on earth. What does it say if we serve a God that by grace gave himself for us so that we can have salvation in him. What does that say about the way that we treat one another? The unity that we have, the grace that we can show that we no longer have to use, but we can hold everything that we have with open hands to reveal the grace that God has given us. See, Jesus, when he comes, he actually resets wisdom. He flips it upside down. He makes foolishness of the wisdom of the world and reveals what true wisdom is. Because if we look at all of the things that I just said, are those not the only way that we can be completed and satisfied in the way that we long for and were created for? Nothing else in the world can provide for you what Jesus provides for you or give you the identity you need to experience who he is and we were created to be. And so he calls us back to this and says, I want to remind you of who you are in Christ. This is the true wisdom. See the cross rightly or you will see everything else wrongly. We need Jesus. Let me ask you this. What is it that we seek wisdom in? What is it that you're boasting in? What is it that gives life?